Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. We discuss the complex issues and events shaping our world from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, which upholds reason, individualism, and capitalism. If you want to uh, read what we have to say at New Ideal, you can go to newideal.einrand.org. You can read our online publication there. If you're joining us today and you want to be part of the Q&A, um, you can join us on Zoom. Um, go to zoom.us slash join and the meeting ID is here on the screen, 812-506-718. Today, we are going to be, I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Ilan Giorno in a minute, and we're going to be, um, we're going to be discussing an article that Ilan wrote recently on New Ideal. Again, you can go there and read it if you want to. And the title is When Tribal Journalists Try to Cancel Ayn Rand. So the article is an analysis of two pieces that were written um, about Ayn Rand and about the objectivist movement. Um, and, and it's an analysis, not just of the things that they're saying about her, but at, at trying to get at what's underneath that and what's motivating it and what what uh, um, you know what's what's going on with these articles. So the two articles that Ilan analyzed are there was a piece in the New Republic called "The Last of the Ayn Rand Acolytes," and there was a piece in Salon called "Right Wingers Finally Got Their Ayn Rand Here Was President and It's This Guy." Um, so and I think it's fair to say that you know these are basically two kind of hit pieces. So there are, these are, you know, pieces kind of attacking Ayn Rand, attacking objectivism, attacking the objectivist movement. And um, Elon's article is, is not, a, not a defense of Ayn Rand from that point of view, but more of an analysis of what's motivating this and where does it come from. So I'm going to stop my screen share and I'm going to have Elon join us here. Uh, hi, Elon, how are you? Good, how are you, Keith? Good, and I just want to say that I I, uh, I really enjoyed your article. I thought it was really well written, and um, I th what I thought was interesting is you know people have been writing articles about Ayn Rand, kind of attacking her, distorting and misrepresenting her ideas for decades. I mean, they were doing this when Ayn Rand was alive and speaking as a cultural figure, and it's this is something that's continued for forever. Um, and we don't always take the time to respond to these attacks. Most of them aren't, you know, aren't worthy of dignifying with the response. But I thought you had an interesting reason for taking these on and, and analyzing them. So what was, your, what was your motivation in writing this article and, and in particular taking on these particular articles? So I, when I first read them, I was struck by how distant they were from the reality that I've experienced. So I, one of the articles is uh, the reporter spent some time at the Objectivist Summer Conference, which the Institute sponsors. And I was at that event and I, I was at the lectures that he reports. And I thought, this is just, it doesn't really match what I saw. And the other article just struck me as uh, having a kind of agenda. So as I thought about them, and we had some discussions in our editorial group here at the Institute, I, I, I came to the conclusion that they're actually, uh, I mean, they're very bad as journalism, and that, that really stands out, and we'll say a bit more about that, but that wasn't even the primary reason. What struck me is that 
they're artifacts of our culture in the sense that they re represent a particular kind of mentality that's becoming rampant. And one way to think of it is, is to think of it as a tribal mentality. And this is a, an analysis that Ayn Rand had when she was alive. She was writing about this kind of issue. It's basically the view that my group is right and not for any good reasons, but just because it's my view. And whatever facts you encounter, you manipulate them to serve and justify your own group's view, not to understand the truth. So it's a real disconnect from truth and value. And it's a commitment to sort of defending your position and, and discrediting anyone who's outside your, your view. And I, and I read these pieces from that perspective. And I think they, what you get from it is they, they're illustrative of that mentality in a big way. Now, it's, not, it's important to get, it, it's rampant it's all over the culture. So it's not limited to Ayn Rand, but I think it comes out really starkly when people deal with Ayn Rand from this perspective, because she is so far out from the way a lot of people think about different issues. She's challenging so many conventions and so many uh, ideas. So it, it's a good example of that mentality in action with a concrete, an issue that I, I actually know and care a lot about, Ayn Rand and her ideas and, and the philosophy that she's developed. So it struck me that, you know, by unpacking this, that there's something really important to be learned, not only about the way they misrepresent her, but just their mentality and the kind of the, the, the motivations behind it as sort of uh, putting in a wider perspective what's going on in the culture. Now that, so now that's a pretty strong claim that you're making there, though, because it's one thing to say as an expert on Ayn Rand's philosophy, you know, what they're saying about her is incorrect. But to look at that and say, not only is it incorrect, but but it's illustrative of a certain men mindset and mentality. You know, the evidence for that is going to have to be even stronger than just they got her wrong. You, you, you know, so but but. In the article, you are very careful to parse that out and to to trace that. So, why don't we why don't we talk through for people who haven't read the article? What are some examples you know that you're seeing in these articles where there's just not even a concern for truth? Um, that this is what you're arguing is that there's not even a concern for truth. There's just an attempt to defend their tribe against the Ayn Rand tribe and so on. Yeah, I agree. Where, where it is a very strong claim, and uh, and I and one of the things I want the article, and I encourage people to read the article to get because we're not going to be able to cover even uh, many of the sort of key points. But just I agree. Let, let's go over some of the the evidence for the claim. Uh, the the key thing that I sort of the method I took in this to illustrate the method, sort of the mentality behind it is to ask the same questions that are motivating the uh, nominally the same questions that the, the reporters were asking themselves. So the first article in the New Republic is nominally interested in a really good question, which we think a lot about, which is, what is the appeal of Ayn Rand to young people? Because it's always been very strong and it's outlived her lifetime and it's global. It's not only in the US. I mean, we, we, we've seen that you were in South America last year doing some conferences for the Institute. And I was in Warsaw just this spring. And it's everywhere, so it's a real question. Why is there that appeal? And, so and you're right that it, and you're right that it's something we think about every day yeah. because our whole mission is to try to right. spread Ayn Rand's ideas and educate young people about what she had to say. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's a very important question. So, and it's and it's not an easy question. So I, so the question, the article is seemingly trying to understand that, and it's. So I, so I, I look through the article and I say, well, what would it look like to answer this question? What kind of evidence would you need to come to a conclusion? And does the article prevent, present any kind of evidence that would be 
supportive of any kind of conclusion that is in the article. So it definitely has an article and it's article, it definitely has a conclusion. And that conclusion is, yes, all the young people are into socialism and communism. Ayn Rand is doomed. And there's a kind of exulting about that. It's like, yeah, finally she's doomed and we can really stop thinking about her. Let's, let's just put her away. And this is why I use that quote, you know, air quotes cancel. So what, what, so if you ask the question, is the appeal of Ayn Rand to young people flagging? Is it, is it really, or taking a nosedive today? Um, well, how would you begin to answer that question? And I'll, you know, I'll disclose that we think a lot about it and we think it's a very hard question to answer. Not is it flagging, but what is the appeal? Because the more people I've encountered who are interested in Ayn Rand and different levels of interest, different depths and in time, it's not one thing. Sometimes it's the, the heroic portrayal of the characters in the book that people find that inspiring. Sometimes it's the moral fire that the heroes bring to their work. Sometimes it's just an artistic experience and the, the people who are fans of Einer, they're not very interested in her political thoughts. I mean, the, a good example of this is, I've not really talked to him in person, but I, just from reading and, and other things, Mark Cuban, you know, a very famous person now, he, he's, uh, he owns a basketball team, he's in Shark Tank and other things. And I don't think he's bought everything Ayn Rand has to say, far from it. I mean, he's basically said publicly, I'm a fan of the Fountainhead, that's it. Which is interesting because um, the way these articles deal with Ayn Rand, it's all like, it's, by, it's either all or nothing. You're either yeah. swallow everything she has to say and assimilate it and you're kind of, you know, you've got stars in your eyes or, you know, you're, you're a communist. And so, so you, if you ask that question, first thing you have to know is there are many different entry points and reasons people like Ayn Rand and the appeal to her. And I think with young people in particular, it becomes even more um, sort of fine grained because part of what happens for young people, I think we've all experienced this, is that at a certain age, people start asking philosophic questions. They don't name them that way. They don't think of them yeah. that way. But it's, well, what's right and wrong? And, and what should I do with my life? What's meaning? What, how, do I, what, how do I navigate this world? And that's the point at which a lot of people find Ayn Rand and they realize, wow, there's, there's a whole way to look at the world here. And I mean, that was my experience and I think it's your experience, but that's, you know, that's an aspect of part of her appeal, that sort of idealism about how to live your life. Yeah. Now, before you go on to the next step, I just want to say we've gotten some uh, super chats response here. So I just want to say thanks to John E. and uh, Jessica, who says thanks for keeping Ayn Rand's ideas alive. And and we got a big one from Jonathan, who who thanks us all for everything we do, and particularly says that your essays are first rate, which I agree with. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> so thanks for using the super chat. Yeah. Um, and thanks for doing that, guys, and for your, the compliments. Yeah. Uh, so if you ask the question, it's, there are a lot of aspects you'd have to think about. And so I, I was fascinated. How is he going to, how is the journalist going to answer these sorts of questions, knowing that there's a lot to Ayn Rand's appeal, never mind whether it's going up or down and, and how you would establish that, because that's, that's a, a different kind of data problem in its own right. And we have a lot of data at the Institute, 35 years worth of data, and we still think it's a hard question yeah. to solve. So he, he, the bottom line is the article, the journalist decides there's only one way to find out the answer to this. And I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean that to be uh, dismissive, but uh, the, the only way to answer it is to go to the summer conference, which I mean, it's a logical first step, but if you think that that's gonna answer it fully, which is the implication in the article, you're completely mistaken. So he goes to the summer, the objectivist summer conference, which I was there and you were there. And, and I, I think I, I crossed paths, crossed paths with, with him a few times. 
Um, and what's interesting is what he takes as evidence for his thesis, because he comes in, well, I'm pretty sure this is flagging. So what does he take as evidence that interest in Ayn Rand is plummeting among the youth? Um, well, one of the pieces of evidence he gives is that the registration for the conference is, is heavily discounted for, for young people. For, we have a youth discount. And I mean, this is not the only piece of evidence, but it's one of the pieces of evidence. And so it struck me, that's weird because who would not, what intellectual movement like objectivism would not be interested in attracting young people? You, I mean, maybe AARP, but it's not an intellectual movement. Because <laughs> I started, I was thinking, is this even logical? Like, is this evidence for this claim? And then I decided, well, look, let's look at the biggest progressive movement conference there is, and it's called Net Roots. Uh, and if you go to their website and they had a massive event, our, their event is about five times bigger than ours at, at the best of times. And are there any discounts there? Yes, there are lots of discounts and there. Some of them are really generous and, and they compete, you know. So, it, you know, from the evidence of there's a discount, therefore the Institute is responding to plummeting interest. It doesn't, you can't reach a reasonable conclusion from that either about our conference or about the net roofs because you can make the same argument about the progressive movement, which is exactly contrary to what he's arguing. Like they, yeah. I don't think there is plummeting interest for that. And just in case people think you're distorting the, the evidence that he's providing for his thesis, I mean, that's literally all there is. He talks about the talent show and like there's a jam session at night. Like that this is, we're desperately trying to drum up interest among young people. <laughs> it's just, that's the, that's the flimsiness of the evidence. Uh, and I, I want to just make one kind of general point because we got yeah. into the evidence. And I think we should talk a bit more and, and, and present some more of the, the claims made. And then, so how would you think about this? And what's, what, what evidence is actually presented? But I want to make a wider point just because I think this is going to be, uh, I mean, part of what I do in the article is correct some misconceptions and errors because there's just so many of them. But I don't, the goal is not to be comprehensive. That would be a different kind of article. And, and, you know, it's kind of funny sitting at the Institute, writing for the Institute Journal, and the obvious thing people are going to say is, well, of course you're going to go after this guy, and you guys are just trying to, you know, circle the wagons. And the, the goal of the article is not at all to do that. I mean, I, my premise in the article is, even if you don't agree with Ayn Rand, even if you haven't really thought about her, if you were going to ask these questions about her impact, her appeal, her ideas, you would need evidence for your conclusions. And these articles just are not interested in the evidence needed. They're coming in with a preset conception. And it, this, the same standard would have to apply to any serious thinker whose ideas you're trying to engage with, where you're going to, let's say there's a Darwin conference or a conference on Marx. You couldn't, it would be just as illegitimate to treat their ideas and their impact and their appeal in the way that these authors are doing with Ayn Rand. So it, the wider issue is, I mean, the value I think that needs to be put on the table is what I'd like to see people actually engaging with what she has to say, actually engaging with the, the, com the complexity of what her appeal is and has been and why it's so strong in a way that it is, takes seriously facts and truth and evidence, not coming in with, I know, I just want this to be true, which is sort of the vibe you get from the article. I want this to be true. I want Ayn Rand's impact on young people to be nosediving. And I'm just going to go shopping for evidence and shopping, quote evidence, shopping for quotes from young people. Yeah. I mean, you, you raised an interesting point about the article, because who does he actually speak to most of the time as quoted in the piece? I mean, that's, that's what I found ironic, because I read, I read the articles that you were criticizing as well, of course. And uh, he, he's, trying to, he's trying to claim, his central claim is that interest in Ayn Rand is flagging among the young. There's just, it's all 
faded and it's a, she's done. And, and most of the, a lot of the people that he talks to and reports on are young people who just discovered Ayn Rand's ideas and are super enthusiastic about it. And now they're at the conference. <laughs> so it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so one other kind of piece of evidence that he raises or part of his claim is, so he comes with this picture of Ayn Rand as essentially, uh, and we'll say more about this in connection with the other article, as she's the backbone of the American conservative movement. She's sort of the gateway for people into the right wing, which Ayn Rand would have been astonished by, because I, I don't think that's at all how she thought of herself. And I don't think it's actually quite true. And the, the implication that he's trying to establish in the piece, well, uh, he's kind of grasping for, for uh, material to sort of present this narrative, is that the totality of what Ayn Rand has to say is just a rationalization for being greedy. Like he, he, his expression for it is, it's just about, quote, personal pocket stuffing. And, and so he talks to people who got scholarships to come and he looks at the price tags of things at the, at the store. And the, the, I mean, the, Ayn Rand has a lot to say about capitalism and she was an ardent supporter of that. And, but to think that that exhausts what she has to say intellectually, I mean, the, one of the first things she would say is, I'm not primarily an advocate of capitalism. I'm an advocate of egoism. I'm an advocate of egoism because I'm an advocate of reason. So there's a whole philosophic uh, underpinning that she brings for which politics, in her view, is a, is a distant consequence. So there's a kind of trivialization in the article about what is really Ayn Rand about? And what really brings this home is that he's really put, the article's really pushing the idea that, yeah, these Ayn Rand people are all about money grabbing. And, and the reality is that much of that conference that he attended and the, 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 the announced theme, many of the general sessions and a lot of the evening events were all centered around Ayn Rand's theory of art, which is, I mean, it's pretty far from like her view. I mean, it's connected to her view of capitalism and she has things to say about the integration, but it's, it's, it really should be dissonant. If you're coming in to answer a real question and you're a reporter, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, you know, I thought she was all about capitalism and all these people are talking about are plays, movies, music. There's a performance at night. There's a, how is this integrate? And yeah. it's, he's not interested in that. He's not really interested in answering the question because he's already answered it before setting foot at the event. And I think that's part of the evidence for thinking this is putting a certain kind of tribal animus. Like we want to get rid of Ayn Rand. Just, you know, the hell with the facts. Let's just, I'm going to massage whatever seeming evidence I can find to make this narrative seem kind of coherent. Yeah. And, that, and I think that's what he's doing. And he, and he does a lot in the article to make the things that were discussed about art. You know, he talks about one of the sessions on her kind of the, the music that she liked and, and one of the play, and there was a stage reading of a play and he, goes to great effort to make it seem weird and, you know, uh, 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 unappealing. And, and the idea that there's, there's, there's a whole sophisticated view of the nature of art and philosophy. And, and I mean, he, he takes some pot shots at Cyrano de Bergerac, which is, you know, not just among objectivists, but I think widely regarded as one of the greatest plays in history. And, has no, you know, I mean, even just taking pot shots at that, um, it's almost like a, a collateral damage is going after Cyrano in 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 his in his desperation to attack Ayn Rand. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I think the, if you are an active-minded, if so, if there were a performance of Cyrano at Netroots, the Progressive Conference, I don't think he would have been opposed to it. Right. I think it's 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 the kind of well, it's 
part of this Ayn Rand thing. I don't like her. Therefore, it I'm not going to. Yeah. yeah, it must be weird. I'm going to find reasons to dislike it. I mean, the bottom line of the article, I haven't given all the evidence for this conclusion, but the, the conclusion that I derived at is he's coming, he's not really trying to convince active minded readers. Anyone who's at all critical would be asking questions like, is this really enough evidence to think you, you can show the number one, you can show what the appeal is. Number two, you can show that from one event, one conference, you can establish that interest is flagging. Um, and I think it's rather what's happening is he's trying to create a kind of soothing emotional message for people in what he regards as his camp, his tribal camp. And if the message is, you know, stop worrying about this Ayn Rand phenomenon and all the, the conservatives around that, they, we, which we, whom we hate as well, stop worrying about that because they're done for. And I've shown that they're done for. Isn't, that, isn't this great? You know, and you know, we can feel secure in our views. We don't have to worry about them. We don't have to think about them, which is sort of part of the not, not really being concerned with, does Ayn Rand have anything to say that's true? Yeah. Whatever you think of her, like, what is the evidence she has for her views? What does she stand for? It's not at all part of what interests him. Yeah, we got a question. Before we move on to the other article, we got a question about this one that I think is worth taking up now. And the question is, was the writer, quote, undercover at the conference or was he open to attendees and staff about his reason for attending? I think we often get inquiries from the media, from journalists who want to come to our conferences. We usually issue press passes. We, uh, well, you can say a little more about this, but we usually expect that they're there. I mean, it's rare that they're there to write a, an objective, honest piece about the about the conference and the event, um, but you know it's really hard to assess what what they're going to do and what the article is going to look like. Um, and you know we don't have anything to hide, so we 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 generally are, are <clears throat> open and transparent to journalists who want to come and attend our conferences and see what's going on, and and we hope and expect that they'll be honest in what they say about it. But did you want to say something more about that as well? Yeah. So in this case, he, he asked for a press pass. We gave it to him. We, I even sent him a book because he was interested in reading. Uh, so the, the event was celebrating the anniversary of Ayn Rand's book on the theory of art, the Romantic Manifesto. So, so you sent he, him a copy of that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, because <laughs> I mean, I have, you have to go in the assumption that people are coming in good faith. And I asked him, are you coming to do a hit piece? And he said, no, no, no I'm really interested. So I said, okay, great. And, you know, I, maybe in his own mind, he, he was really trying to be objective, but he, his mentality is such that he can't really figure out what that looks like. But there have been cases of journalists who come to an event sort of incognito or unannounced and then later write about it. And interestingly, one of the more thoughtful pieces, which I haven't written about, but there, there was a thoughtful piece in response to something we did. So an event we did in San Francisco it's thoughtful. I don't think it's right or I don't agree with most of it, but it was the person was really trying to think through what she heard at the event. And you know, she didn't come in to get a press pass. She was just, she paid her way. She was interested. Um, but this has happened before. We've had people come to the conference. And I think there's a kind of genre of journalism of, I'm going to go into this subculture and show you what it's really like, you know, and the people do this with, with cults. They do it with, you know, religious fundamentalists. Like I'm going to go among the, um, you know, the people in Utah who are survivalists, I'm going to show you what they're really like. And, and I mean, some of that's interesting, but what's, what happens here is that he, th this journalist in particular, who was trying to do that was, I mean, he came with preconceptions that he wasn't willing to question. And that's yeah. part of what I try to establish in the piece. And, and, and what makes that genre of journalism interesting is when they, 
really do actually try to engage with the people's beliefs and take them seriously. So, you know, one of the things you were, you just talked about is um, the attempt in this article. And I think this is a good transition to the next one. Cause it's even more apparent there is, is the attempt to uh, argue or claim that Ayn Rand is the backbone of modern conservatism. And what's, what's fascinating. I mean, what, what's, what's interesting about that is her, she cannot be pinned down on the political spectrum. She has, some of her views are more in common. You know, if you look at her views on, on abortion, on freedom of speech, on the, these are more traditionally associated with kind of leftist liberal, more in the classical liberal sense of the term, not the progressive left today, but, but more associated with the kind of classical liberal left than with conservatism. She was an ardent atheist and, and uh, rejected religion to its core. Um, and, you know, and, and yet, um, to understand that you actually have to look at her views on a range of issues and understand where, you know, where does she have some points in common with conservatives? Where does she have some points in common with liberals? But I think it, it speaks to the theme of your article that people tend or tend to be so immersed in their tribal mindset and their tribe, you know, they view, and, and that, that they, that they think these are the only categories that exist. And the idea that somebody could have a more nuanced view that, that rejects both of them and has a, has a totally different alternative, uh, it, it takes a lot more analysis and understanding and work to get to that. And they just aren't, don't seem to be willing to engage in that. I agree. I think the, the so the second piece is, I, I forget the full title, it's kind of funny, uh, but it's Amanda Marcotte in uh, Salon. And What's interesting here is there, there are two major claims, and I, I deal with them. There are others, but I, I deal, I'll, I'll mention these two. One is, as you said, that Ayn Rand is the backbone of the American conservative movement, and two, that, uh, that Donald Trump is a manifestation of Ayn Rand's moral theory of selfishness. Let's take each of these because both of them are interesting questions. And I actually think that this would be a great article for somebody to write. What is the relationship between, and I actually interested in this kind of issue and I'd like to write about this. What is the relationship between Ayn Rand and American conservatives? Because I think she's had a huge impact on it, but not in the kind of way in which you read about in a lot of articles like this. So one of the questions you would ask, I mean, you, you mentioned some of the points of dissonance and I think there was a, you, you can't really understand Ayn Rand if you ignore those. And you, you, you're fooling yourself if you think you know what conservatism is about, if you don't appreciate that there are conservatives who hate Ayn Rand more than there are, more than some con progressives hate Ayn Rand. I mean, there are progressives whose views on Ayn Rand are so much more uh, open and, and sort of respectful than there are, I've talked to conservatives who are like practically foaming at the mouth they hate her I mean, so much. One of the worst reviews of Atlas Shrugged, the, the most distorted and vicious attacks was from the National Review. So. so, I mean, the first thing you would have to ask is, if you're trying to establish it, or if you have a view, what is Ayn Rand's relationship to, to conservatism? It, do her, does Donald Trump represent her views in practice, in morality? One of the questions you would have to ask is, what goes into Ayn Rand's appeal and how, how has that impacted people who think of themselves as conservatives. Because I think that label is so vague, it just over the years it become vaguer, that it could mean all kinds of people. And they respond to her for all kinds of reasons. I mean, one of the examples, and this is mentioned in the article, is um, you know, various politicians who've come up and said, yeah, I, I, I give Atlas Shrugged away to my interns. I think that was um, 
uh, Paul, Ryan. Paul Ryan and yeah, that's right. And, and there are others too. And some of them are, are really kooky and some of them are more reasonable and some of them, Paul Ryan's a Catholic. And when he was pressed on it, he said, no, I don't, I don't agree with everything she says. I like some of the stuff in Atlas Shrugged and, but I'm a Catholic and that comes first. And now you would have to think about what that looks like in terms of, does that mean he's a, cause in, in her article it's like, yeah, they're sellouts. Or, or is it that the way people process intellectual ideas and, and philosophic systems is more complicated in the, in the sense that influence is not all or nothing. So if influence can mean they take something from it, it might even be a misinterpretation, but they take something and it influences their view of life and they act differently. It could mean that they're selective. It's like, I like this, but I don't like that. Or, or it might not even be that reflective at all. So you could get politics. So I think it's an interesting and, and really in some ways positive uh, uh, development that you have politicians who are not afraid to say they like Ayn Rand, not everything that she has to say. Does that mean that they're sellouts? I don't think it necessarily does. It really depends on what they take her to be doing and why they like her. Uh, and it could also be that their view is superficial. And so they don't understand that there's contradictions. Um, so there's this whole gamut of uh, this whole range of reactions that people might have. And I think this is true among a lot of people who think of themselves or, or kind of are part of the conservative movement. That there's things they like about her, but there are things that they really don't. And there's different uh, sort of a range of things. So, and it's important that you get that because um, that's how they think of themselves. And, and there's, a, there's all kinds of things they um, like and dislike about it. But then the other side of it is what you mentioned earlier, which is Ayn Rand's view of conservatives. And so she would, in her own time, she was scathing about the conservative movement. She thought they were, they, she thought they were, and I think this is right, that they were selling out capitalism by failing to defend it on rational moral foundations. And, and she would not want, she didn't want to associate herself with that intellectual movement. She, she saw them as betraying an important ideal uh, and doing more damage to it by, by doing, you know, an inadequate job. So this whole clash between Ayn Rand and the conservatives is one issue. What conservatives take from Ayn Rand, and then not only conservatives, but anyone who's at all influenced by her, this, this whole question of what that looks like. None of that comes up in the article. Like you would have to at least nod towards, yeah, this is complicated. How do you get a yeah. Paul Ryan getting on the 2012 nomination, who's not at all ashamed of Ayn Rand, and yet, he's Catholic. That to me is a fascinating question. Yeah. And then you get people who are much more in kind of the libertarian side of things and they like Ayn Rand for other reasons and different reasons. And they hate uh, her for other reasons too. Yeah, so. and they, yeah. And they're libertarians who really dislike Ayn Rand. So you have to ask, is it, am, am I getting at anything true here? If what I'm saying is she's the backbone of the American conservative movement, what is this whole metaphor is doing a lot of work that is preventing you from getting at the truth. There's no, evidence in the article um, that the author is interested in understanding what this relationship is. It's just this quick, I'm going to, my goal here is to connect her to conservatives because I don't like conservatives. Like, and, and there's this, this sort of, my readers are on my side on this. As soon as I say conservative, they're already kind of ag agitated and triggered. But, oh yeah, we know there's trouble coming. And so there's, there's a whole question of what that element of the argument is supposed to be about. There isn't much, uh, then, then the big, so the, the centerpiece of the article is this question of, does Donald Trump as the president now, does he manifest Ayn Rand's moral theory of selfishness? Is he sort of the living embodiment of it? And so the, the argument of the, so the, the thrust of the piece is, if, if that's 
true, then obviously that discredits Ayn Rand and discredits Donald Trump too, because you're kind of smearing both with the, the both bad people. Let's, uh, can we actually, can we just pause? Yeah. I want to come, I, I definitely, I, we talked about this before. So I know we want to talk about the issue of her view of selfishness and how she presents it in the article, but I want to honor our super chat posters here. So we got a super chat question from Tom who asks, is tribalism an inescapable part of human nature? Why don't we just take a couple minutes? We were going to talk about tribalism a little later, but why don't we take a couple minutes to address that? Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, I don't think it's inescapable. I think Ayn Rand has a, a brilliant analysis of tribalism and you can find it in her essay, Global Balkanization. And another essay is The Missing Link. Uh, I, I wrote a piece that Bill sort of draws on those uh, Ayn Rand essays. Uh, so sort of, I, think, I think I call it the virulent pull of tribalism. You can find it on mm -hmm. New Ideal. And it's, it's a, an attempt to just summarize her argument for what is tribalism. So in, in essence, it's, it's a, uh, Ayn Rand thinks there's choice, we have free will, and we have a choice how to think, basically. And tribalism, in her analysis, is ultimately a default on that responsibility to think independently and, and reach truths and understanding of value by your own judgment. And it's a, the default then is, well, what do I do? How do I guide my life? What are values? It's people default into some group and then the group tells them, oh, these things are what you should do. And there's some, you know, the group is the authority and there's somebody telling you what to do. So it's not inevitable in the sense that we're sort of doomed to be tribalist. And I think that, that that's a, a view that's common today, but it's, I don't think it's true. And uh, but the, but what is inevitable is you have to choose. You're either going to use your mind and be independent and first-handed about life as a way of living, as a sort of principled approach, or to the extent you default, that's sort of what leads to the pull of being tribal and there's worse and, uh, and less, wor less bad manifestations of that. Yeah. I, think, I mean, I think it's worth adding that if you look at it from the point of view of human history, like in, in prehistory before, like, the, the, the fact that reason exists and it's our faculty of understanding that was, that was, that was a, something that had to be discovered. And, in, and I think prehistoric man, it, it's very natural for people to have, to, to have a tribal mindset and to not recognize the need to think independently as opposed to just following along with your tribe and the other tribe's bad. Um, and, and it, and it took, major discoveries from the best thinkers in history and centuries of, of progress for people to discover that the individual mind is uh, the source of knowledge. And so I think it's not, it's tribalism isn't an inescapable part of human nature, but it's very natural for it to be a default. Like you, did, like you said, it's a, it's, a, it's a default on independent thinking, um, but it's very easy for a lot of people to fall into that because independent thinking is, it takes a lot of takes a lot of effort and and um and, and it takes an act of will to do that so yeah and just one other thought on this before we kind of resume on the, the main thought of the discussion is there are all kinds of pressures in the culture that push people in this direction uh the sort of cultural aspects and i, I talk a bit about that in the article that i mentioned and ayn rand talks a lot about this uh, and the, sort of for her, the, the big, a major factor is sort of the dominant philosophic views in the culture. And the, a big part of that is the, the way those ideas are disseminated pr primarily through education. And so tying it back to the discussion here about the way these journalists are trying to engage with Ayn Rand, uh, 
I mean, these are these are not out of the way publications. These are at least New Republic used to have some prestige as a serious publication. What I think is that there, this is what goes to the, the point at the beginning about this is a cultural uh, artifact. It shows you sort of, uh, it gives you a window into a way of thinking that's common in the culture. And so I think these, re, these journalists who are engaging with Ayn Rand in a way that I re describe as tribal, it's that they have assimilated so many of the dominant views in our culture that what really matters is not the truth. It's what you want to establish and you can manipulate things. And that's what it looks like to think. And like, if you're justifying your own position, your group's position, that's, that's acceptable. And, and reason and facts and evidence, well, who cares about that? You can, you can take it or leave it. And that's essentially what's going on in this article. Um, th there's yeah. no real concern for, I'm engaging with another mind, therefore I need to give evidence and reasons and, and logic. That is sort of what's conspicuously missing in the methodology of both of these pieces. And that's part of the clue. So it's a big clue to their mentality being, well, I don't need to give you evidence. Obviously this is like, we know Ayn Rand is bad. We know conservatives are bad. Here's just a few things to throw toward that direction. And let's start cheering, right? It's we're, we're yeah. at a rally. Now that, that's a good segue back to the issue of selfishness because part of what's so important about Rand's analysis of the concept of selfishness is the idea that there's a conventional understanding of the concept that people just take for granted, they absorb it with their mother's milk. The idea that selfishness means not just concern for your own interests, but concern for your own interests at the expense of other people and that it, and that it necessarily requires, you know, a kind of thoughtless, uh, callous disregard for others or predation on others, that the idea that that um, these things go together is just something that people take for granted and um, uh, kind of unthinkingly accept. And what's, and, and um, one of her most important observations is the, is the idea that these things don't belong together, that there's a concept of selfishness um, that, that, uh, that means concern for your own interests in, in harmony with other people. She, you know, she, it's, a ra it's a form of rational self-interest. Um, but what's interesting is how her view of selfishness gets presented in these articles. So this, is, this gets back to the Salon piece. Yeah, and I think so. two other things about her view of selfishness that are important because it, it sort of sets the contrast for what happens in the piece. Ayn Rand's view is that it's, it's non-predatory. That's my term for it's it's non-predatory. You you're engaging with people as as traders, what you know, exchanging values. You're not exploiting people. And the other one is, and this is I think essential to Ayn Rand's view of selfishness. It's about you. It's about engaging with the facts first-handedly. You look at the facts. You judge things. You form your own opinion, your judgment of things using your your rational faculty. And it's you and reality. That's the primary relationship, not you and other people. And that, I mean, if you read her novel, The Fountainhead, that's just, that is sort of central to the, what makes the, uh, Howard Rourke a hero. I mean, this is, he's first-handed in, in sort of so many dimensions. And that means you're concerned with the truth and you're concerned with facts and you're concerned with logic. Now, and I, I know talking about Donald Trump can agitate lots of different people for different reasons. So the, the point of the article is not to say Donald Trump is a bad person or a bad president that you can have your, that's a separate uh, discussion. 
what I try to show in the piece is the author in Salon is trying to say, Donald Trump is the embodiment of Ayn Rand's view of, of rational egoism. So the question is, what is Ayn Rand's view of rational egoism? And we've talked a bit about that. And does Donald Trump match that? And I think the answer is, the journalist is not at all interested in what Ayn Rand's view of egoism is. It's a caricature. And the, just some of the things you would have to acknowledge about her view of egoism is that it's not what most people mean by that term. Like the first thing, as you mentioned, Keith, it's, it's not at all. She's, she's adamant that people are putting together things that don't go together under that heading. And the second thing you'd have to go, and if you're going to make a case, you're going to really argue and try to establish for another mind that there's evidence for the conclusion that Donald Trump represents Ayn Rand's view of egoism, embodies it. He's the ideal of this. You need an argument. And there are lots of easy counter arguments to this, which is, you know, he's not really interested in facts or truth. And he's, you know, he, there's evidence in his business career that he, he was exploitative of others. He took advantage of, uh, of opportunities that were predatory. <clears throat> so just at a surface level, you would have to say, wait a minute, th this doesn't fully fit. It doesn't, it's not clear that this is actually right. But then if you're really serious about establishing this as, an, as a position, you would have to take on some of the counter arguments or counter evidence. And it's not as if those are hard to find. Like any, often when you pitch a piece to a magazine, the first thing they tell you is see if anyone's ever written on this. And if they have, well, how are you different? And people have written about Ayn Rand and Donald Trump. And is there, does he embody her view? What is the relationship? And, and the answer, in my view, and the view of my colleague, you know, Ben's written about this, but our colleague Ben Baer's written about this, Ankar Gatte's written a couple of articles on this is, uh, there's so much dissonance, there's so much contrast between the behavior of Donald Trump and his views and Ayn Rand's views. You can't, it's just not plausible to think of him as the embodiment of her. In fact, I mean, if you want to put it uh, sort of jokingly, he, he much more resembles the people she presents as, as villains in her stories, the people who are unconcerned with truth, unconcerned with facts, and who are finding ways to get things that are unearned. I mean, and again, I don't, I don't want to start arguing about Donald Trump. That's not the point here. You might be able to explain those things away, but on, if you're trying to establish that he embodies her theory of egoism, <clears throat> you have to know what that theory is, and you have, then have to sort of counter-argue for the, the obvious objections to it. None of that in the piece. And I think that sort of the, that's the outstanding element that shows there's no interest here in convincing anybody or anyone who's critical. And the, the result is it's, there's a disdain for facts and a disdain for logic. And for, in effect, for anyone who's not already convinced of the view, the article's headline uh, signals. Like if you're not already in the camp of, yeah, yeah, we know Donald Trump is terrible and Ayn Rand must be terrible because she, you know, there's this connection. And in this respect, this is one of the aspects in which you can see this is a tribal communication. This is not meant to engage with ideas or facts. It's meant to say, we knew all along Trump is bad. We don't need evidence for that. When we knew all along Ayn Rand is bad. Now let me mix them together. And then I can say, you know what? If this is what Ayn Rand looks like, yeah, we can throw both of you out. Like, you know, smearing both, uh, you know, two birds with one stone kind of thing. Um, and again, it's the same kind of idea that it occurred in the previous article that we discussed, which is it reassures the people who already agree with the journalists, in effect saying, 
we don't have to take this seriously at all. We can dismiss it. It's, it's fine. Forget about Ayn Rand. This thing, I finally put the, the last nail in the coffin. Let's, let's put her in the ground. And that, I mean, you might want that to be true, but you, you need to establish that you've done the work intellectually to establish something like that. And that, that's just not at all there. Um, well, there's, there's a lot more we could say about all of these articles. Of, but of course, they're all available for people to read. Uh, your article and then your article links to the ones that you analyze. So, um, you know, we could keep going for hours probably, but uh, we've got some questions in the Q&A module and I think we're getting close to our time here. So um, maybe we can, we can start to bring it to a close. So um, the first question is just a follow up to the one about uh, reporters coming to our conferences. What do you think about holding a press conference at every Ocon? you know, where they can actually ask the questions that they're going to be angling for in the article, and then we can answer them honestly. And then, uh, you know, rather than let them come in sort of surreptitiously without really revealing what they're, what they're looking for. What do you think of that? Having a press conference? We don't get enough reporters, I think, yeah. to, uh, to warrant that. But um, I mean, I, I'm, I don't see any downside to it. But the question is, will they ask the right questions? Or are they coming with the story already written? And that's really, the, the, yeah. if they've done that, they can ask you any question they want and disregard it and then still publish what they want. So it's hard to deal with, uh, if a journalist has, has already decided what they want to say and they're just showing up to sort of log some time and log some interviews and pro forma do it, then there's not much you can say and do. And I just want to say, I mean, it's okay. I mean, it's unavoidable that there are going to be people who are not really being upfront about what they're trying to do. But overall, I think it's, it's good that journalists are interested in this because they're really interesting questions. And I wish there were better journalists taking these on. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't really want, I mean, I don't think a lot about how to fence, us, fence uh, the Institute or our activities away from journalists. I think it's important that we get some publicity, but I think it's also important to answer back when we think this hasn't been dealt with um, in a sort of straightforward and an honest way. Yeah. Okay, we have another question from Deb about how do you respond in conversation where you don't have all the answers, you know, um, they don't agree, you know, it just, I think this is more of a question of, of how do you engage in intellectual debate when you don't know all their views, they don't know all of your views, and, uh, you know, it's, it's challenging to uh, debate with people. Yeah, I, we probably should the, have the other a... aspect of this is yeah. they, they're not expressing their disagreement properly. I see. I mean, we should have a, maybe a like another episode of just about how to engage with people. I think it's a big topic. Mm. You know, one thing that I find helpful is I, I try to ask questions of people to bring out what their actual view is, because some people just aren't that good at communicating what they think, or they need they need more prompts, and it's easy to misinterpret from the initial way they state things. So I, I try to try to uncover as much as I can. And the other thing is. Sometimes if you don't know, you don't know, and it's fine to say that and just go find out and then continue the conversation another time. And one of our colleagues uh, makes the point, I think it's really helpful. Uh, a conversation isn't the, you're not gonna convince someone in one conversation. It, it's an educational process. So it's layers and con multiple points of contact. So it's, it's good to have repeated encounters and you can just, you know, last time I wasn't able to answer your question about X. I've thought about it and here's my, my, my current thinking on it. And then next time you'll have a better view and, and maybe you won't be able to answer them, but at least you'll have a um, sort of really frank discussion and exchange. And, and that's, I think it's good because you'll have probably more progress that way. 
and it, and it presupposes that the person you're engaging with is actually interested in the facts and open to honest discussion. As we're seeing here, to you know, the, the articles that you're looking at are examples are, are coming from a mindset where it's not even a question. They're not even interested in learning something new, understanding what Ayn Rand actually stood for. They're just they're just trying to score points. Yeah, I mean, I just want to share one one small. Call. I know we are running out of time, Keith, but I just want to, to just to illustrate what I mean by tribal and this idea of trying to. Uh, sort of reinforce the in-group view and and disparage and dismiss and discredit the outsiders. So one of the things that is done in this Salon piece, which I think is really telling, uh, and this goes to the idea of treating Ayn Rand as a thinker who deserves to be taken seriously. Um, so the journalist goes to a third party as a source who would know something about Ayn Rand and can comment on it. And, and the first question you would have to ask is, who would you go to? So actually a lot of good scholars now in academia, outside of academia, who are published experts on Ayn Rand. They've written things. You can say, yeah, this yeah. is. I mean, we personally know tenured full professors of philosophy <laughs> who are experts on Ayn Rand's morality and, and philosophy. Yeah, and there's been a real um, sort of blossoming of Ayn Rand scholarship in the last 20 years. So there's a lot of people you can go to. Okay, suppose you don't want to go to those. You could go to a professor who has an awareness of her, who's an actual expert in, in moral philosophy and say, well, what do you think of Ayn Rand? Where does she sit in the intellectual landscape? No, that's not where she goes. Where does this journalist take uh, sort of a, an expert source? Well, she dredges up a guy who blogged his way through Atlas Shrugged. And literally, I mean, my, my son could blog his way through Atlas Shrugged. That doesn't make him an expert. <laughs> And, you know, if Keith blogged his way through Darwin's Origin of Species, or if, or if, you know, someone else blogs their way through Das Kapital by Karl Marx, that doesn't make them an expert. That makes them someone who's read the book and has written about it. But that's, but it, that to me is sort of the quintessential um, dismissiveness of facts and everything. Like if you take that seriously, you're not a critical reader and you're an even less critical journalist. I mean, knowing your son, I think he would do a better job of walking yeah, his way through Atlas <laughs> Shrugged than this guy. But, but, it's, but even, so, I mean, I, that's sort of just the level of not being concerned with truth or even convincing other people. Yeah. Uh, and that, that to me is, is a really unhealthy mindset. Yeah. All right, we have one last question here. Um, is modern journalism structurally predisposed to tribalism given the nature of the news media? It's a question from Aaron. Um, I don't know. I don't know enough about the field to say that. It seems that would be a very strong claim. I think to say that it's predisposed. But um, I, think, I think I mean I think you could say that given given the nature of the educational system yeah. in America, I mean it, there are definitely forces in the culture and in in the education that people get that that um, does you know, nudge people towards that kind of mindset. So I don't know necessarily journalism yeah. per se or journalism schools, but. Yeah, I mean, if the question was asking about sort of the dynamics of writing articles and getting published and things like that, maybe there are things like, I don't know enough about that, but I agree. I think the wider context is part of the, is a more significant part of the explanation. So the, the educational intellectual atmosphere that we're in is much more of a factor. Yeah, all right. Um, well, I think we're kind of at time here. So um, do you have any last thoughts before I uh, wrap up? I'm just gonna. Yeah, just one quick recommendation is I'd love for people to read the article and if they have feedback, you know, you can always reach us at New Ideal and uh, thank you for joining us today. I would say uh, to me, one of the things that motivated the article, as I said, is, is just establishing what it looks like 
or at least some of what it looks like to engage with Ayn Rand seriously and, and treat her as an, a thinker who deserves uh, time and thought and, and really uh, a sort of considered take. And that that's really the goal here is to establish that that's the standard to hold uh, her up to, uh, to sort of engaging her just as you would with someone like Darwin, who, is a, who was a controversial figure in his time and someone like Marx, who I disagree with, but I think if you're gonna engage with Marx, you can't smear him, which is the way Ayn Rand is treated. Uh, and I think, I think people, I hope people really uh, take value from the piece and, and in terms of what it looks like to do that, whether or not they agree with Ayn Rand, whether or not they, um, they view the article's claims to be true or not, because I don't think there's evidence for that. So I just encourage people to read it and thanks for supporting our work at New Ideal. I hope you subscribe become an ARI member and support our work more generally. Yeah, and let me just quickly share the screen again. And, and uh, so if you want to uh, get our contact content, um, again, you can go to New Ideal. Let me just move back a few slides here. So if you go to newideal.einrand.org, that's where you can find Ilan's article and all the rest of our articles that we have on our website there. This is the article we just discussed and the two articles uh, that Elon's article was analyzing, you know, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, make sure you uh, ring the bell to get the notifications and all that, all the whole nine yards. This, uh, this series is also available as a podcast. If you go on to your favorite podcast platform and search for new ideal live, you can get these um, shows as a podcast. So be sure to do that. And uh, we will look forward to seeing you at a future webinar or one of our events, and uh, I think we'll draw a line there. So thanks for joining us today, everybody, and thank you, Ilan. Thanks, Keith. See you guys. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.